1: So, take two, Paul. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And, Paul, as I always like to say when we're doing this in front of a room of people, this feels totally natural. I don't even sense anyone here.
0: This is how I want to live my life, actually. (laughs) Under a hot spotlight with failing technology. This feels great.
1: (laughs) Well, uh... Thank you for coming. Tonight on the show, we're gonna talk about medical cannabis and we have a great guest, Dr. Julia Arnston. We will introduce her fully in a second, but Paul, before we do that, can you remind the audience, what exactly is it that we do on The Curbsiders?
0: sure happy to as always matt as a reminder we are the internal medicine podcast we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge and then i'm going to set you up matt i understand that you had a pun that you want to include here because you're going to be too embarrassed to do it in front of our guest who's sitting next to us
1: N- now she's sitting here so you know paul i just wanted to remind you before we get too far into this show that you know you can't spell healthcare, paul without thc we'll agree with that
0: don't <laughs> you don't have to indulge this that's not necessary
1: And then, Paul, I know we've been having some interpersonal issues lately, and... uh, I hate this. Just allow me to be blunt. If we're going to continue to do this, Paul,
0: I want it to be a joint decision. This is the worst day of my life. I'm going (laughs) to introduce our guest, if that's okay with you. Matt? Do you have any more?
1: No. Well, I do, but, you know...
0: Let's introduce our amazing guest. We have Dr. Julia Arnston with us. She is a professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She is the Chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine at Einstein and Montefiore Medical Center. Dr. Arnston earned her MD from New York University School of Medicine, an MPH from the Harvard School of Public Health, and a BA from Wesleyan University. She completed residency training in primary care internal medicine at New York University Medical Center Bellevue Hospital and fellowship training in general internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Arnston was the founding chief of the Einstein Montefiore Division of General Internal Medicine in 2004. And since then, she has created a vibrant academic home for over 75 faculty members. In 2017, Dr. Arnson launched the medical cannabis program at Montefiore, which is the first primary care-based medical cannabis program in the United States Academic Medical Center. So without further ado, why don't we actually get to the show? And actually, before we do that, let's just hold for applause for our, our fantastic guest, please.
1: You're such a professional, Paul. Yeah, you're such a professional. Dr. Arnson, thank you so much for joining us. And the audience has just heard your bio, but can you tell them maybe how do you describe yourself as a one-liner and maybe Throw in a hobby or interest outside of medicine.
2: Thank you so much for the introduction and the applause, and it's really exciting to be able to be here and talk about this topic, about which I feel very passionate. So I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I was born and raised there. That might be obvious to you after listening to me for 30 seconds. I'm primary care and addiction medicine trained. I'm the mother of two amazing young adults, and I have to say that as Division Chief of General Internal Medicine, I have the best job in the world. It's the best job, and I'm currently in my 60th year on the planet, and I can also honestly say that life gets better and better every year. So now that I'm older, um, I am trying to work a little less hard and reclaim some of the things that I like to do when I was younger, and this has been helped by the fact that I've recently had a, uh, some orthopedic surgery and spending a lot of time on my back, and I have been uh, doing quite a bit of sketching and drawing which is giving me a lot of pleasure.
1: I'm glad that you, that, that life is getting better as, she's go, as you're going on. That, that gives orthopedic me a lot Orthopedic surgery for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the orthopedic surgery, you're feeling life is getting better. So that's a good outlook. I can Gets get on better. board with that.
0: Uh, I'll do our, our usual um, thing where we ask for just some sort of piece of culture to share with us that, as, uh, that you've enjoyed recently. It can be a book, a television show, um, movie, something, something broad. It doesn't have to be anything um, monumental, but just something that you enjoyed recently.
2: So I, I, you know, um, I was sent that question in advance. And so I thought about it a little bit. And uh, living in New York City, I really get to take advantage of a lot of arts. uh, That's been kind of tricky during the pandemic. But one of the things that I love is live theater. And that's begun to come back. And so there's two shows that I've really really enjoyed over the last few years that are now being, uh, you can see any at other places than than New York. So if you live in a, another place you can see a version of, of these two shows. So one of them is um, David Byrne's American Utopia and the other is the Lehman Trilogy. And so these are very different than one another but they both um, are really a, a statement on what it's like to live in this country during this time and um, I, I recommend them both. I believe the David Byrne show has been made into a movie by Spike Lee, which I haven't seen, but I'm sure is well worth seeing.
1: I wanted to ask you before we get on to the main topic here, can you tell the audience, so you've, you've accomplished a lot in your career and you told us to sit, almost 60 years, you've, you've accomplished a lot already. So, but tell us, like, what is some great advice that helped you get there along the way that you found meaningful?
2: I was thinking about this question too. And, and I think the most meaningful advice that I've received in my career has been the advice that I did not follow. And there's a lot of advice you'll get, which you should not follow. And it reminded me of one of the things that's often said in, in 12-step meetings, um, take what you like and leave the rest. So I think the most meaningful co- advice for a career in academic medicine, which is not easy, is to uh, cultivate your perseverance and also pay attention to your passion, Because succeeding in this game requires a tremendous amount of perseverance. And if you don't have passion for what you're doing, it just can't be done. So figure out what you're passionate about. And then more importantly, where can you do that thing? And who can you work with that you can do it with? And that's how to be successful, create a career around those things.
1: Thank you. That's excellent advice. Paul, you know, I think the audience probably wants a pick of the week from you. It's 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 good to see him do it live. And like this is not prepared in advance. And Paul, what what do you think?
0: Sure. You know, what can you to recommend? I'm gonna it's I feel like it this is already caught on, so I don't know, but I I I've been very much enjoying Severance, which is an Apple, um, an Apple TV show starring Adam Scott. It also has Chris Walken, John Taturo in it. Patricia Arquette. It is this dystopian sci-fi series that I've not finished yet, so it may tank at the end. I don't know. Um, but it's Basically, it's a shadowy corporation where the whole premise is that its employees, they have their work life um, medically separated from their home life. So when they're at home, they have no idea what they did at work. And when they're at work, they have no idea who they are at home. So it takes this idea of work-life balance to like this weird dystopian extreme. Then, of course, this corporation turns out to be shadowy and terrible. Um, so I'm enjoying it so far. Um, like I said, hopefully it doesn't go bad, but I, I don't think that it will.
1: I actually might check that out, Paul. A lot of your picks of the week are too, like, they're soul crushing for me. But I, I think I might check this one out. This episode is brought to you by Grammarly, and curbsiders, you know I love Grammarly because at the curbsiders, we're sending out a ton of written content each week, whether it's through our email list or putting show notes on our website, and we want to make sure that we do a good job there. Grammarly helps make sure that our work is clear, concise, and to the point. And also, it can even help us with tone. That's right, Grammarly has a free tone detector to make sure you're making the right impression because my co-host Paul Williams, he's mentioned to me multiple times that it's hard to gauge tone from an email, and this has gotten him in trouble, but with Grammarly, he can set the tone to friendly, casual, whatever he wants. That way it keeps him out of trouble. We love that about Grammarly. Personally, I love Grammarly Premium's feature where it can give me complete sentence rewrites because sometimes I say things in a confusing way and Grammarly's like, hey, wado, why don't you say it this way instead? That is a great feature for me. So get to the point faster and accomplish more with Grammarly. Go to grammarly.com curb to sign up for a free account. And when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off for being our listener. That's 20% off at G-R-A mmarycom slash curb. This episode is brought to you by Med Mastery. If you want to learn the most important clinical skills in a fun and effective way, then you need to check out Med Mastery. It's an award winning online learning platform endorsed by the British Medical Association, and they offer courses on really useful skills from the basic to the more complex things like EKGs, point of care ultrasound, mechanical ventilation. How to read echocardiography. MedMastery's courses are taught by amazing educators like everyone's favorite kidney boy, Dr. Joel Toff, and other great educators. I've had the chance to use MedMastery, and they are a great resource for people who like to learn by videos because they break things down into simple, bite sized videos and they do pre and post test quizzes. They use a lot of adult learning theory to make sure you're learning the material. Plus, all MedMastery's courses are peer reviewed and CME accredited. And if you're in a residency program and interested in a group subscription, then the folks at MedMastery would be happy to assist you with that. Listeners of this show can claim a 15% lifetime discount on any of their subscriptions. Just go to www.medmastery.com slash curbsiders to claim your discount. Again, that's medmastery.com slash curbsiders. So, audience, Medical cannabis, you've probably heard about it. It's pretty popular right now. Uh, Patients just love this stuff. And uh, there's also um, recreational use of cannabis. Maybe that's not the right term, but we'll learn. And uh, right now, something like 36 states have medical cannabis and another 12 or so have recreational use cannabis. And it is just exploding. So the first question for you, Dr. Arnston, is what is, you know, What's this history that got us here? A lot of my patients call it marijuana or weed. Why is marijuana not the preferred term? Does, how does that relate to the history of this?
2: Okay, so that, that's about five
1: questions. I like to ask like 10 or 12 <laughs> questions at a time. Yeah. Uh, but,
0: it's like okay. taught medical school, just stack them as much <laughs> as possible. Patients love it. <laughs>
2: Okay, so you know this is a this is a fairly controversial topic for doctors to talk about, and the way that I have um, gotten my mind around this topic and have been able to uh, to launch a, a medical cannabis program at an academic medical center is by really separating um, medical cannabis from Uh, other forms of cannabis use. And you said recreational cannabis, and that is the term that's been used for a long, long time um, in this country. Uh, Many people prefer to use the term adult use for non-medical cannabis because we know from a lot of surveys and other data, including some that I did, that people who are buying cannabis in a dispensary without a medical card are more than half the time buying it to treat a specific symptom like pain or insomnia which means that most people are not buying in order to have a party or be recreational now that doesn't mean that most cannabis is not bought by those people who are buying it to for recreation but most people are not buying for recreational purposes so i like to use the term adult use cannabis and separate that from medical cannabis further The debate about whether cannabis, the plant, the flower, the bud, all of the things should be legalized for people to purchase who are over 21 and where they should purchase it and how it should be regulated— is a, a crucially important debate that has very uh, tremendous implications for social justice and a long, long legacy of racism and harm to undo. But that's not the debate that we're having when we're talking about medical cannabis. When we're talking about medical cannabis, we're talking about is this uh, is this a medication? Is this a pharmaceutical that can be used? to help people with specific symptoms using specific doses of the active ingredients in the cannabis plant. And so for me, it's a very helpful distinction to think about adult-use cannabis as something that some people use to treat symptoms and some people use for recreation, but is, is not what I as a doctor am going to talk to people about. I'm never going to say to somebody, walk down to the dispensary and buy a quarter ounce of White Widow. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I don't know what exactly is in it. I, I, that it's just that, That's not our lane. So if we can prescribe or recommend is the term, because this is not FDA approved... Specific formulations of THC and CBD and give people specific instructions about how to use them safely, to me, that's medical cannabis. Now, that's my opinion, but I'm the expert here, so (laughs) (laughs) you get to hear it. Um, There are other people who believe that there are enough benefits to the whole plant that you know, we should be helping patients to grow the plant and use the plant and that that is our lane. I'm not one of those people. So that's the adult use, medical use story. In this country, we really didn't smoke cannabis. The way that we took it prior to the 20th century was uh, using tinctures. So um, the the oil would be extracted and uh, turned into a tincture. And it was on It was prescribed by doctors, it was on the United States pharmacopoeia, it was the subject of medical conferences, it was a widely used substance for cough and pain and menstrual cramps and neuralgia and and all kinds of things. And then what happened in our country in the early part of the 20th century, right, in in the first and second decade of the 20th century, is that we had prohibition, and we also had a depression, and we also had a lot of immigration to this country, and... Cannabis, um, as well as alcohol, were prohibited. And in order to, and, and there was a very concerted effort at the level of the federal government to determine how to, like, free the society from cannabis. And one way to do that was to associate it with another element in society that people were unhappy with. And that element at that time were immigrants who came from Mexico. And so the plant became called marijuana in really in order to associate it with Mexican immigrants. And that's the story of marijuana. And so, you know, there there is a very long standing movement to try to delete the word marijuana you know from our from our language now the other important historical things that have to do with cannabis and 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 how it got to 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 the position that it's in right now where it's you know so um, maligned and a schedule 1 substance has to do with nixon but I feel like I've been talking and talking so we can uh, let, let me let you ask another question and we can talk about Nixon and the war on drugs um, a little yeah. bit more.
1: Well, I think, I, I think we, we, I do want to get to a case. Cause yeah. I, I mean like the, I, I want the audience to leave here tonight having some idea about how to talk to patients about this. So Paul, would you do, would you do the favor, me a favor and read the first case? The audience can see it up here on the slide. But uh, can you read the first case?
0: Sure, yeah. After 2,000 years of history, we're going to bring us to Jake. Um, Jake is a 35-year-old male with anxiety, obesity, chronic pain, high blood pressure that's reasonably well controlled. He's sedentary and works a desk job. He's been to physical therapy for back pain. He's tried SSRIs for anxiety, but he stopped them due to weight gain and decreased libido. He's been buying cannabis from a friend and wants to know if you can certify him for medical cannabis. One of his friends had an opioid overdose in the past, so he is appropriately wary of opioid medications. Acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and muscle relaxants all provided only modest relief of his pain. Cannabis has been the only thing that has really helped him so far for both his anxiety and his pain, so he's here... In our office for certification. So just given that introduction, what what other history do you need to know about, Jake? What other questions might you ask before you start to certify or consider certifying someone for cannabis?
2: Well, first of all, let me say, if this patient were not already using cannabis this wouldn't be somebody that I would start first on cannabis, right? This is somebody who should probably go through a good trial of some other modalities for their pain treatment before we start them on cannabis. But they are coming to us on cannabis, and they're telling us that um, it helps them. And so that's the situation that we're in. If I were to say to Jake, well, I think you should stop taking cannabis, the likelihood that that would Advice would be followed it is pretty low, and so what I want to do instead is have a conversation with Jake about why he's using cannabis and how he might use it more safely and more predictably. But in order to do that, I need a lot more information. So really, we have to do a, a more comprehensive pain assessment. So. What kind of pain is it? When did it start? What's been, what's been the work up to date? Have there been any imaging studies? What other medications has he tried for it? What's been his response? What are the OTC analgesics? What was his response to acetaminophen and Zeds? What were the muscle relaxants that he tried? Uh, has, when did he go to physical therapy? If he did, I thought he did uh, why didn 't he go to physical therapy um, and you know helping him go to physical therapy and a whole a whole bunch of other things like that who prescribed this SSRI? was it me um, <laughs> the primary care doctor why did I do that so so what what 's happening with, with this patient? you know we need to we need to really understand it um, there are many doctors in, who are certifying patients for medical cannabis uh, who are not um, able to do a comprehensive assessment they they ask patients to bring them their records and they'll go through their records but it isn't necess- it, it it's a it's a much different kind of an assessment some of these are done over the phone or they're done online and they they the patients are charged cash for it so what we've tried to do is create um, a medical cannabis evaluation program within primary care so that we're able to have access to all of the records that every, everything that's been done for our patient in our hospital setting, and if they've been to pain management, if they've been to rheumatology, if they've been to neurology, if they've been to orthopedic surgery, whoever they've been to, we have access to those records. And so I would like to know all about that with respect to his, his pain, which, uh, for which I think the evidence is good enough to give him a trial of medical cannabis anxiety is a different issue. So they're lumped together in this case, but they're really very different. And that's because the data for anxiety are much, much less clear. I I, I believe that the picture that will emerge is that THC is going to worsen anxiety disorders in high doses, but in low doses may be effective for some people. CBD will probably be effective for anxiety disorder, but this is a very complicated situation when somebody has pain and anxiety. What are they medicating with the thing that they're taking, whether it's cannabis or something else, and how is it helping them? So what I try to do with a patient like this, in addition to getting a a more extensive history, is really have a a non-judgmental conversation. Uh, Tell me about your experience with cannabis. How do you use it? How many times a day? In what form? How does it help you? There's no judgment here. This is what I need to know in order to make a reasonable recommendation for you. And to really have people tell tell me what their habit is, what they're doing.
0: Speaking of which, why don't we give you a little bit more history about uh, Jake's use. So Jake smokes cannabis nightly before bed, sometimes during the day on weekends. He has tried edible brownies at parties, but he doesn't really like them because he's found the effects pretty variable and he prefers smoking cannabis. Uh, he likes cannabis better than beer or alcohol because, quote, I can still drive if I need to, which obviously makes us shudder a little bit. He denies any family history of schizophrenia and in terms of quantity, he says he buys about an ounce of cannabis each month. We've got a little bit more history here. So I, I guess as you're talking about the certification process and you're sort of counseling patients through what to expect and sort of how this will proceed, can you just sort of talk us through your script and your, your spiel talking about risks and benefits?
1: Can I put in a plug for the, the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst article that y'all did has a an appendix in it that really has a lot of what seems like it's from your EHR almost directly, like the forms that you use, what questions you ask, the scoring systems, it's it's very helpful. So uh, we'll of course link to that uh, in the show notes, but I would recommend that to everybody for the kind of stuff, the history that you just went through, that's all in there and there's forms for it, so, which would be really helpful if you were in primary care trying to do this on your own. So now uh, to Paul's question.
2: So there's a lot of information here. And, God, okay, so if I'm sitting down, can I stand up? If you want to, sure, sure. Sorry. So I'm sitting with Jake, and he tells me the story. Okay, I use cannabis before I go to bed, uh, and sometimes during the day or on weekends. So I would say, why? You know, why do you use it? Why do you use it before you go to bed? What would be a, 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 a during the day or weekend time when you would use it? And I would really try to help the patient separate Uh, when they're using to relieve pain or to get sleep because they feel like they can't get sleep, and when they're using because they're bored or they're you know with somebody else who's using and they they just feel like they should or or some other reason. And to not make a judgment about those latter kinds of reasons, if you want to do that, you know, you do that, but that's not your medicine. I want to talk about your medicine and I want to switch you to a form of cannabis as medicine that will be helpful for you. So What form is that going to be? Well, it's not going to be smoking. I say to every single patient, you know, the most important thing that I as a doctor can tell you is don't smoke, don't inhale, smoke into your lungs. Whatever kind of smoke it is, don't inhale, smoke into your lungs. And, um... Once in a while, I might recommend to somebody that they switch from smoking to inhaling the vapor from either an oil or a a vaporizer that vaporizes dried flour. But really, I, I very much encourage patients to use either tinctures or some form of edible. And an edible can be a pill, a gel cap, a gummy, something like that. Baked goods are not medicine. <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, that's why everyone's here. They thought you were going to tell them like how many cookies to eat or brownies, whatever it is.
2: Yeah, no baked goods. And, um, you know, it, if you want to do that in your own time, that's fine. But we're not going to think about that as medicine. And because what we're trying to get to is the point where what we're recommending to a person is that they're taking something like, 2.5 milligrams of THC and 2.5 milligrams of CBD or 5 and 5 or 10 and 10, and that we can reliably and predictably know that what we're recommending to them has that much THC and that much CBD in it. So I explain all that to patients. I, when I tell them, I say, okay, let's talk about what medical cannabis is. Do you know anything about it? They say either yes or no. I usually open up a website, which is from one of the dispensaries in New York State, which, um, thank you, which, uh, <laughs> which um uh, they're all of their websites are very very helpful. The, the dispensary New York State has had a very medicalized form of medical cannabis, and there there have been only five companies that have been licensed to do medical cannabis in New York State. So I practice in New York State, so that's what I'm most familiar with, and um, all of their websites have a, a huge amount of educational information on them. And in the dispensaries in New York State, the patients are required to meet with a pharmacist before they make their before they make their first purchase. And that pharmacist is going to go over many of the things that I go over. Um, and so I know that they'll hear them again.
1: And, and I was going to say for, for him here, I, I think maybe you're leading towards this. We we gave you the last bullet here. He buys an ounce of cannabis yeah, each yeah. month. I'm getting so it. the quantification, I, I want to put this up here and let you talk through it because okay. I thought this was super cool when you were telling me about yeah. this. And, we're almost there. Okay. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> Sorry guys.
1: We're we're here for the ride. There it is. You're doing great.
2: <laughs> okay. All right. I thought you wanted me to talk about something else. We'll talk about that. So, um so I do try to uh, get people to describe how much they use. And this is not easy for some people, and for some people it's easier. And so the way that I ask about it is I say, how often do you buy cannabis and how much do you buy at a time? And people usually in our community buy about an eighth of an ounce at a time. And we get all kinds of answers. I don't buy it, my boyfriend buys it for me, or my child gives it to me. But you know, people can usually make some of kind of estimate. Sometimes they, you know, say a baggie. Um, but, you know, we, we, we try to get a sense of how long a person takes to go through an eighth of an ounce. And so what is an eighth of an ounce? So an eighth of an ounce is, um, there. an ounce is 28 grams. Everybody knows that. So that's 28,000 milligrams. So an eighth is one eighth of that, which is 3,500 milligrams. So that's just math right? So, in, so that would be in the plant form. That would be the plant form. And so the plant form has all the things that the plant has, and it. it has all the other cannabinoids. It has some leaf, although a lot less leaf than it used to have, and it has CBD, and it has THC. And what we're really trying to understand is how much THC is in that, that volume or that weight. And we don't know, right? We don't know. Um, but we estimate, and we estimate about 10% but it could be anywhere from 5% to probably no more than 25%. And patients are very surprised to hear that because they, sometimes they think that they're buying cannabis that's 90% THC. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that made you laugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> Um, seems like a wild <laughs> overestimate, that's all.
2: Right, right. But, you know, even in Colorado, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the most cannabis that you're going to get in dried cannabis is going to be about 25 to 30 percent. So if somebody smokes, tells me that they're using an eighth of an ounce um, every few days, I'll say, okay, that sounds like a quarter of an ounce a week. And that sounds like an ounce a month. And these are very approximate but that's kind of where we get to. So an ounce a month would be that I think that's that middle column, right? Yeah, the,
1: the, bottom, the bottom there. So w- an ounce a month is around 2,800 milligrams of THC per month, or 93 milligrams right. of THC yeah. per day. Yeah. And so this the, is again, from the: the Yeah, catalyst. that's from our
2: part. So an ounce, an ounce a month, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty big habit. Well, I thought it was a pretty big habit, but now I've met people who, you know, go through an ounce a week. <laughs> So that's where we would go. Okay, so now Jake, we don't know how much he smokes. We just know he smokes every night. So I have this very interesting conversation with patients about the way in which they smoke. What do they do with the weed? You know, do they roll it in a joint? Do they roll it in a joint with tobacco, which is a blunt? Do they roll it with tobacco paper? Do they put it in a pipe? Do they do something else? And then we have a whole lot of conversations about why that, that whatever it is that they're doing is not healthy. Yeah. So, it, if it has tobacco in it, you know there's all of that. If it's rolled in tobacco paper, there's that. Even if it isn't rolled in tobacco paper, they're still you know inhaling smoke into their lungs.
1: Well, let me let me summarize where we're at here as far as Jake goes. So Jake, so right now we've we've gone through our whole list of like why are you using this? How much? He he told us it's an ounce a month. So right now we know it's about 93 milligrams yeah. THC per day and he's he's mostly smoking it sometimes let's say sometimes he's using tinctures um if he can get them but mostly smoking it maybe about twice a day and then you said that you you do talk to them you you prefer patients are not smoking that they're using a tincture you said maybe vaporization paul where where do you want to take this next with jake like what else do we do you want to know if you're seeing this kind of uh this patient in your practice
0: i i think have a broader question i mean you you talked I think we're limited in terms of what we know because of, we're limited in how well we can research because of the legal issues around cannabis. But I did want to ask, in terms of what we currently know, what conditions actually have like solid evidence to actually certify someone and sort of what are some of the the softer calls? But like, what are the things that we know benefit from from actually certifying for cannabis?
2: So there's, at this point, there's probably about 30 or 40,000 articles um, if you go into PubMed that have to do with cannabis or or marijuana. And um, about five years ago, there was... Was a panel that was put together of many people who do research in this area where they reviewed the number of articles that there were at that time, which was about 25,000, and you know came up with some guidelines for us. And there's been some criticisms of the methodology, and um, but but. To my read, it, it's pretty solid. And so uh, this National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine panel that reviewed all of these articles essentially told us that there are three conditions for which the evidence is sufficient to, uh, to consider cannabis. And so those three conditions are chronic pain, and the evidence is probably the best for chronic pain. But what does that really mean? So this is what it really means and this is what I tell the patient, for about half of people, you you will get some benefit to your pain from using cannabis. So if there's two people just like you sitting in front of me, I don't know which one of you is gonna get the benefit, all we can do is try and see what happens. And then the other important thing is, what is that benefit? And the benefit is modest it's about a 30% reduction in pain. So if somebody's walking around with 10 out of 10 pain, they may go to seven out of 10 pain. Yeah. And so you know, we really have to be very clear about the expectations. Now, if so, that would be a conversation, I would have it like that if somebody were naive. But if somebody is telling me, no, this helps me, you know, then I'm not gonna argue with that you know, they're telling me it helps them. Now, if they're using 100 milligrams, that's a pretty hefty dose. And an ounce a month is is, is quite a lot. And so our goal, and we're not going to get there the first day, but our goal is going to be, can we get to a lower dose that still helps them, but doesn't put them at risk? Now, what are the other two conditions? Because I said there were three. So the first one is chronic pain. And then there is a little bit less evidence, but enough for two other very specific conditions, and one of them is nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy, and the other is spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. So these are really the only three conditions. Now, chronic pain is a big wastebasket, and a lot of the data for chronic pain come from neuropathic pain, and they also come from uh, formulations of cannabis that we don't have in this country.
1: (laughs) That's okay
2: So it, it does become a, a really complicated issue, and a lot of this is because of the fact that we can't do research. and we can't do research because it's a schedule one drug, and we can do research, but it takes a really, really, really long time and a tremendous amount of perseverance, and even then, the results are... Uh, limited because the way in which one can do research on cannabis in this country is to buy the cannabis from the federal government and ask the federal government to give you cannabis that has either this much THC or that much CBD and hope that it really is like that. And whether what you get from the federal government is equivalent to what um, would be in in the products that the proprietary companies are making is something that People are just beginning to study. But in order to even get that product from the federal government, I'd say it takes about four or five years of of um, paperwork. So you have to get a Schedule I license, <laughs> you have to submit- Paul Williams is the man <laughs>
1: for the job.
2: <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, you could have a baby and raise them and still be I'll, waiting I'll to it's- start your study. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's really, and so so as a result, we really don't know the answer to many important questions. It's, it's interesting that I think
1: you're able to certify patients for many more diagnoses than the three that you just... Right. Which is interesting and which is why I think the use of it is so ahead of the evidence and the enthusiasm is so ahead of, of the evidence. Well, that's
2: because the the... the- lists of what you can certify a patient for, which are different from state to state to state. So in New Jersey, you can certify for for anxiety, but in New York, you can't certify for anxiety. But these lists of what you can certify for are not made by us. You know, they're made by politicians. Mm -hmm. That's who makes them. And so, you know, we end up with, you know, people who are listening to different to different constituencies, some of which might be very smart, but they're trying to, you know, craft a, a legislative, you know, piece of legislation that is going to meet everybody's needs.
1: This episode is brought to you by locumstory.com. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Well, whether you're burned out or need a change of pace or you're just looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenens either full-time or on the side, then you probably have a bunch of questions. And fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need because it's packed with unbiased information and advice for people like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's just a resource for information, and you're going to find handy tools like trends for your specialty. You can compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenens, but also more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. And their blog features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have firsthand locums experience. Visit locumstory.com. It's the perfect place to start. If you want to learn more about locums, that's locumstory.com. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Curbsiders, you remember Green Chef. They have fresh produce, premium proteins, and organic ingredients that you can trust. And that's why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. They fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, gluten free. They've got you covered. Green Chef's expert chefs curate every recipe so you can enjoy restaurant-quality dishes at home without compromising taste. They have 24 always-changing recipes to choose from every week. You're not going to get bored. And it's sustainable. Their meal kit offsets 100% of their carbon footprint. What I love about Green Chef is it gives me some confidence in the kitchen because while I do enjoy preparing meals, I'm a little bit lazy And I don't really understand how to season foods. But with Green Chef, they tell me exactly what to do. All the ingredients are there. All the seasoning is there. And it tastes great. And I can do it with my kids, which is really fun. So go to greenchef.com slash curb130 and use code curb130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curb130 and use the code curb130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Let's let's get back to Jake and try to talk about how we're going to prescribe to him. So we've we've calculated how much he's currently using here, and uh, and I do want to try to leave at least a couple minutes at the end for audience questions as well. So I think we're doing okay if we if we're we move right. on. Yeah. So let's let's talk about Jake. How you might think about his dose, and you can you can talk to the audience. I I think this is similar to what you do. So the example number two at the bottom is a patient that's using an ounce a month. And the example at the top is a patient using one eighth an ounce per month. How so for Jake? What would that look like? What would you prescribe? What would you tell him when you're going to recommend? You're going to if he, let's say you certify him and now you're recommending a dose or formulation for him.
2: Yeah. So the, the, the patient who's, who smokes an ounce a month that we've decided is, you know, when I do the calculation, I, I round it up in my head. I try to show it to the patient at the same time, but I say, okay, it's about a hundred milligrams a day. The do, a, a single dose of cannabis, it's a little bit uncertain right now, but it's either five milligrams or 10 milligrams. So my belief is that Jake will do best taking a one-to-one formulation at night Mm -hmm. and whether he's going to need 10 milligrams or 20 or 30, um, I think is going to be dynamic. He'll probably need more in the beginning if we're trying to get him to, um, to reduce, and then we should be able to, to come down on that.
1: And he's going to split that into, he's, is he going to take, so of of 93 milligrams THC, you're not going to give him, 93 milligrams at one dose. What, how would you adjust it for someone that's on the heavier side of use? Yeah.
2: So, you know, similar to starting, um, let's say, methadone or, you know, for a patient, uh, if, they, if they came in and told you, this is how much heroin I'm using, you would not try to approximate that much and give them the medicine no. right? right. So it's, it, I mean, even though cannabis is not um, lethal, in overdose. Um, we don't, we don't want people to be overdosing on cannabis. It's very uncomfortable and you know, we just don't want it. So, you know, we would, we, we wouldn't recommend more than say 50% of what we calculate that they're doing. So for him, that would be 40 or 50 milligrams a day. Okay. So that's going to be four doses. And, um, I would probably suggest that he take them for the first few days, uh, take two doses, 10 and 10, Mm -hmm. and then go up to, um, 20 and 20. Okay. Okay? But there's a few caveats here. So one thing that I tell patients is that our goal for them, even if it isn't their goal for themselves, is that they're going to stop smoking and move to the medical product. And I get that that might not happen today or this week, but for the 24 hours before they start the medical product, they should abstain completely from smoking so that they can understand how the medical product is affecting them. So for him, I I would say, okay, let's go for a 20 to 1, ratio of THC to CBD Um, I would ask him if he wants to use the tincture or the pill Um, I would explain to him that if he takes so all of these there's so much to say here so all of these different ways of delivering the cannabis have uh, different attributes associated with them and so switching from smoking to an ingested form is going to be a very different experience for him so when he smokes he feels it in five minutes And that's what he's used to. And that's not what's going to happen when he uses either a tincture or an edible. It'll take at least half an hour, probably more like 60 to 90 minutes to kick in. And it'll probably feel different than when he smokes. Mm -hmm. And so he has to understand that and be expecting it. So what I'll tell patients is in the evening, you know, maybe a a couple hours before you want to lie down, take your edible then so that you have some time before you go to sleep to see how it's affecting you. Write down on a calendar or diary how much you took and how you felt. And then we try to get to a dose that works for them over the next four to six weeks.
1: And I wanted to clarify, you said... He, you, you might try him on a one-to-one or you might t- try him on a 20-to-one. Which one do you would?
2: I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. My, I think a one-to-one will work best. For one-to-one. Okay. No, I think that's, but, but I wouldn't start him on that. Okay. Because this, this brings us a little bit to harm reduction, right? Yeah. So like this guy is smoking an ounce a month and he's smoking every night. So he's used to that. Mm -hmm. And whether that feeling that he's getting from smoking that cannabis is helping his pain or not, or helping his anxiety or not, he thinks it is. And so, you know, we have to try to tease out Pain and anxiety and insomnia, and maybe he needs other things for the anxiety and the insomnia. Maybe it's not cannabis. So ultimately, I think a one-to-one is going to be best for him. But for the short term, I would be trying to treat the pain with a a higher THC combination because he's used to a lot of THC make sense?
0: No, it, it makes a ton of sense. I do okay. want to ask, since we're, you know, as we're discussing this as a medication for treatment for specific conditions, and we're doctors who think in terms of risk benefit, I would like to hear how you counsel patients about the potential downsides. Like, are, are there neurocognitive effects? What medication should be avoided with cannabis? Right,
2: right. So, th- so this also is why, you know, THC has its place. You know, patients say, the pain was still there, but it didn't bother me as much, or this is really the only way, you know, that I was able to relax. And, uh, you know, what? That that's okay. But what is becoming clearer and clearer is that the combination of THC and CBD because of the way that they sit in the cannabinoid receptors is is most effective for pain. And so that's really where we want to get to. And CBD so far has very few side effects of which we're aware. We are seeing in when people get to very, very high doses, which is usually for the treatment of um, severe seizure disorders, some um, liver enzyme abnormalities. But in the doses that people are taking, we're really not seeing that. So CBD is is really pretty benign. THC, on the other hand, is where the adverse effects are. So in addition, so the main adverse effect of THC, and I say this to my patients, the main adverse effect is being high. We don't want you to be high. That's going to help, that's going to not enable us, it's going to interfere with our ability to understand whether this is working for your pain. Because you telling me my pain was still there, but I didn't feel it as much. That doesn't really help me understand whether this is working for your pain. So we want to, we tell them being high is an adverse effect and we want to avoid that. But it—but it's really just uncomfortable. So what are some of the other adverse effects that we're trying to avoid? There are data suggesting that THC uh, can raise your heart rate, cause tachycardia, might cause a little bit of hypertension. People who have a history of coronary artery disease, we want to take a very, very careful history of that, make sure it's stable, start them on a low dose of THC. If we, I have one patient that I take care of who has that and has been in a car accident and we started with very low THC and over time she's gone up on the THC. Um, so that's a contraindication and, an, and a potential. Not the contraindication is unstable heart disease. The area to be cautious and to consider adverse events is that THC can raise the heart rate. The other really big area of um, of concern has to do with psychiatric illness and neurocognitive changes. So, you know, you get THC on board and you have neurocognitive changes, right? You forget things the next day, you can't remember what you did. Most of that goes away. Most of that is not a long-term neurocognitive effect. But what's been observed in multiple observational studies is that people who smoke a lot of marijuana um, to, are more likely to have a whole bunch of adverse outcomes that are essentially mental health outcomes. So more likely to have a motivational syndromes, to drop out of school, to be unemployed, to develop depression, uh, to develop psychosis, particularly if there's a family history or uh, a vulnerability, which we often don't know about. Um, And so we have those data. They're from observational studies. They're association, not causation. But there are so much data like that, that if we have somebody who we're concerned about from a psychiatric standpoint or is young and their brain is still developing, then we have to be extremely thoughtful about whether there is any benefit to using THC in those people.
0: The process, as I know it, for certification, the patients have to have access to the internet in some capacity to get the card itself or even the application process costs some money and no insurance to actually covering the product in any dispensary. They have to have access to a healthcare provider who will do the certification. So this seems a little bit like a setup for disparity and like it's only certain privileged people are gonna be able to actually have access to medical cannabis in the first place. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about if, if, if that is in fact the case and what disparities exist.
2: So that's totally the case and I appreciate the question. And you know, when I give this talk, And as I'm talking to you, you know, this is all a really big hassle right like really we have to put patients through this in order for them to have a trial of this medication and the answer is yes and that has to do with the history and the war on drugs and the sort of conflating of the adult use and the medical uses of cannabis and but that's where we are right now so we have this incredibly cumbersome system by which we have to to which we have to adhere in order to allow patients to try medical cannabis and There's many, many predatory persons who are taking advantage of this. I was talking about the online certifiers and the telephone certifiers. And what we've done at Montefiore, which is in a a very poor part of the, the world, is we've embedded this program within primary care so that patients don't have to pay for the evaluation. That's great, but they still have to pay for the product when they get to the dispensary. So we say to somebody, you know, this little bottle of 30 cc's of tincture is going to cost you $75. And essentially, the response most of the time is, well, I can't get it then. Because people live on a seriously fixed income, and that's not something that they can do. And that is is really one of the most heartbreaking things that um, I have experienced in my many years practicing medicine. Um, So we've studied uh, the initial... Um, outcomes from our cannabis clinic. And what we found is that only half of people that we certify are going to the dispensary and purchasing the product. And the other um, sequelae of this is that oftentimes people are not getting up to a, a therapeutic dose. So in order to save money, they're spacing out what they have over a long period of time and then saying, you know, it didn't really work for me. And I'm going to stick with my Percocet, and so because Medicaid pays for that.
1: It is kind of depressing that we have a safer a safer way that can be like. A little bit more exact and we can, we can more easily titrate what the patient's getting. We can reduce harm by they're not getting things off the street that might be contaminated with other things. Maybe they'd be smoking less if we were using more of the tinctures and the other, other formulations you mentioned. So it's, it is a shame,
2: but I I get that is, that is the status of where we are now. I just want to be careful about the word safer (laughs) because it's safer than what? So, you know, is cannabis safer than opioids? This is the question that, you know, people really want to know the answer to. And um, and there are data, you know, looking at this question, um, but they're not, they, they have limitations to them. So what we mostly have for this question are ecological data. So this state has medical cannabis laws and this state does not. And are doctors prescribing fewer opioids in the state that has medical cannabis in the state that doesn't have medical cannabis? And there were a number of studies that showed that about eight, seven, eight years ago. More recently, that looks like it's not true anymore. Um, there's either equal or maybe even more opioid prescribing in the states with medical cannabis. So we don't really know oh the boy. answer to this question. Yeah, that's not good. What we need are and 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 even if we even if all the studies went in the same direction it, it would still be ecological, so this population compared to that population, where what we really need to know is, you know, you have this much pain, and you start medical cannabis, and you have a little less pain, and you start medical cannabis. What happens to your own use of opioids? Does it not the average of the two of you? So does, does for any one person, are they using fewer opioids after they start medical cannabis? So that's a study we're doing at Montefiore, and that's really the question that we need to know the answer to. So do I believe that cannabis is safer than opioids? Yes, but are there people who are less certain of that? Yes.
1: Dr. Arnson if, if you could give the audience maybe two or three take-home points and then we'll hang around and we can uh, answer any follow-up questions from people.
2: I think that really, you know, what I want you to take away from this is that patients or people in their networks are using cannabis or thinking about it. They wanna talk about it with us. And if we don't have the tools or the knowledge to talk about it with them, whether we're going to recommend it or not, but just to have these conversations, they're going to get the information somewhere else. They're going to get it from bud tenders. They're going to get it from family. And it's we need to know what we're talking about. So that's one. Um, data are lacking for most conditions. Um, the, they're best for pain. And I told you what they are. Um, among cannabis-naive patients, I believe that a trial of cannabis is reasonable if the concern for cannabis use disorder, which we were hoping to talk about, but I, I probably talked too much and we, we didn't get there, if the concern for cannabis use disorder is low. So if you have a naive patient, you're not concerned about use disorder in that patient, no contraindications, no psychosis, pregnancy or unstable heart disease, a trial of cannabis is reasonable. And it should include specific doses of THC and CBD, not go down to the dispensary and see what the tender thinks you should buy. And in many states, such trials will be highly limited in what the patients can do because of cost. And finally, for heavy cannabis users like Jake, there are harm reduction approaches to using that can be more protective of their health. So switching to the regulated market, avoiding smoking, and really avoiding the criminal justice system, which is very bad for your health
1: Thank you so much. And definitely there's room for a part two. We have an addiction medicine series coming out. So cannabis use disorder has to be part of that. So this will not be the last that we cover this topic on the show. And thank you, everybody, for joining us.
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) It must be late because I like that one. Get your show notes at Curbsiders.com And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
1: We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can also claim free CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Malini Gandhi. Also a special thanks to the team at PodPace for helping to produce and edit this episode. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Paul, with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
0: And Matt, I'm glad you are. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.